Let's now open the word of God that he would teach us this morning. Our first scripture reading comes from Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 8. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So far from Proverbs. Now we'll also turn to the book of Job. It comes right before Psalms. Job chapter 28. Here Job is pondering the path of wisdom and and how to find wisdom. Job chapter 28. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it, it, underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it 
and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So far from Job. Now we'll turn also to the New Testament, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, verses 8 through 23. Hold on a second. I think I mean Colossians... Uh, Chapter 2, verses 8 through 23. That will make a lot more sense to you. Colossians 2, verses 8 through 23. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." The text that we'll be focusing on is Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes 7, we'll read verses 13 through 18. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of, it of prosper, 
excuse me, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that, not withhold, from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So far, the text. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we're continuing this uh, series in Ecclesiastes, and we're continuing this week in what is the proverbial portion of Ecclesiastes. Uh, depending on your Bible, it may or may not actually be written as, as, as uh, poetic literature, as, a, a proverb, as proverbs are typically uh, written, but this, this is still part of this proverbial section. If you remember from last time, we spent a few minutes talking about uh, the function of Proverbs in the Bible. It might be good just to review some of what we saw there. Uh, Proverbs are are very much a unique part of wisdom literature. Uh, One of the things that uh, sometimes perhaps makes them frustrating to read in in our own private devotions is if you're reading, say, a chapter of Proverbs, uh, you'll find that the topic just seems to keep on changing every two or three verses. Uh, and one, one of the things we saw last time when we started chapter 7 is that's not by accident. It's not like the Jews were incapable of organizing things by topic, but it's actually very much by design. Uh, Proverbs are designed to imitate real life where wisdom comes at you in these little moments from this field of your life and then this field of your life and then yet another. Uh, And that wisdom, wisdom is only gleaned from those moments of life if you take the time uh, during those moments of life to stop, to ponder, to pray, to reflect, uh, and to take it to heart. That's how you learn and grow. And so it is with Proverbs. So it is with wisdom literature. You can very easily read the book of Proverbs and not learn a single thing from it if you're just reading, skimming over uh, the the different Proverbs. The point is to stop, to ponder, to reflect. Proverbs then, uh, by nature, are are somewhat scattered, at least on the surface. They look somewhat uh, disorganized. uh, and, And they can also oftentimes feel repetitive. This, too, is is an imitation of life. Wisdom comes at us often in repeated lessons, uh, illustrations that we see again and again in this life. And some of the most important lessons we learn, we learn because we saw it happen in this person's life and then that person's life uh, and then someone else's still. Uh, so the preacher then here in Ecclesiastes, so far he's been, he's been working on building a, a sustained argument, teaching us to, to see the emptiness and vanity of, of man's pursuits and to drive us to the fear of God. Well, here in chapter 7, he's sort of taken a hiatus from that argument, and he wants us to just spend some time in these Proverbs to reflect on, on uh, the, uh, the wisdom that God has set before us. Now, this week, then, we're picking up in verse 
13, and I want to just take a moment to justify that as well. Uh, In your Bible, verse 13 might be included at the end of a section, uh, but most commentaries uh, will will make the argument that uh, verse 13 actually begins a new section, and and I would take that uh, view as well. You can see uh, a unified section from verse 13 to verse 24. Uh, And and if there's one overarching idea in in those verses from 13 to 24, it's about the brokenness of life, uh, the irresolvable brokenness of life and the inability of man's wisdom to fix it. Man can't fix what God has left broken. Uh, Verse 13 then begins, Consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. And then if you look at verse 23, uh, he concludes, All this I've tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? So there's this this overarching theme of of, of brokenness in this world and an inability of man for all his wisdom to fix it. Verse 13 then begins with this heading, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? This is a rhetorical question, of course. The preacher is not uh, asking you to you know, raise your hand like, me, pick me, I, I, can, I can make it straight. Uh, no, the point is, you can't. No man can. And this is something that we've already seen, in fact, in, in Ecclesiastes all the way back in chapter 1. This is how chapter 1 concluded. Uh, he says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. Well, here, he's, he's building on that and saying, and it is God, in fact, who is the one who made it crooked. It is God who made this world irreparably broken. And we think about that analogy, who can make straight what God has made crooked? If, you ever, if you've ever taken a drive through the mountains, uh, you've seen what, what great effort is expended to make straight what God has made crooked crooked. You drive along and uh, you see these massive rock faces uh, along the side of the road that have been drilled through and then blown apart by dynamite uh, just to make it possible for man to lay a straight road. Uh, And even then, of course, it's not straight. The road curves and winds and tries to flow with the landscape that God has made crooked. Uh, And even after uh, we've blasted our way through and, and made somewhat of a straight way, uh, even then, we often have to throw you know, nets along the side of the rock faces just to keep rocks from, from falling onto the road because the mountain keeps changing. It keeps corroding. Uh, the weather and winds keep coming. Floods wash out bridges. Uh, earthquakes come. And once again, it is crooked. Well, the preacher's point is, life is like that. We would love it if if we could just come up with simple explanations for the way life works, simple philosophies, simple sets of rules that will guide us in all uh, of our life, uh, that will make life a a nice straight and easy path. No obstacles, no conundrums, no frustrations, no ethical dilemmas, uh, no losses. But the reality is life for all of us just isn't like that. Uh, The straight path through life will always elude us uh, and confound us. You just don't always know the right answers, and there's no way to guarantee that you're always going to know the right answers. You don't always see the right course of action. There isn't always a good explanation for why things happen. 
And you do everything to keep your children safe, and still you cannot guarantee that they will not die. You raise your children in the fear of the Lord, doing as much as anyone else, and yet still one of them might walk away. There just isn't a simple straight path in this life, at least not one that we can conjure up by our own wisdom. And if you walk alongside others as well, you'll notice this. Uh, sometimes you discover, I really don't have a lot of help to offer. And I often struggle this, with this myself as a pastor. I feel Sometimes I feel, I don't think you impose this on me, I think I do this on myself, but I feel I'm supposed to have all of the answers and, and that people are looking to me for, for answers when they're suffering or facing temptation or struggles. And sometimes you feel uh, profoundly empty as a church leader because you don't have all of the answers. I'm willing to walk with you. I'm willing to weep with you, uh, to rejoice with you. But I don't have the answers for what you're going through and that, that's somehow going to make it easier for you. And what the preacher wants us to see is this is ultimately something that God has done to this world. It's part of the curse that God has laid upon man. Ever since the fall into sin uh, and the curse that God laid on man, there is a certain crookedness to this life, uh, a hopeless perplexity and frustration to this world that we are not going to be able to resolve. And the point of saying that is not to make us depressed or discouraged. It's to help us appreciate how little our human wisdom is worth when it's up, facing up against a world that is irreparably crooked. It's to teach us to stop trusting in ourselves, to stop relying on our own wisdom, and to entrust ourselves to Him, to God. This is what God calls us to do. Scripture tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Scripture urges us, we saw it in Proverbs chapter 3, uh, do not lean on your own understanding. And it comes very natural to us. It's very easy for us to lean on our own understanding, to trust that I have the answers right here in my heart or here in my, my head. It feels like the right thing to do when God's Word calls us in one direction, but our desires pull us uh, in another direction, our natural tendency is to follow our own wisdom, to, to rationalize our choices, to justify our sins, uh, to make excuses for, for the things we choose to do, uh, or, or to reject the things that God is calling us to believe that, that our human wisdom does not want to believe. And oftentimes, that feels, it feels like wisdom at the time. But that path, Scripture warns us, that path of leaning on your own understanding will always ultimately end in frustration and disappointment. If you want a straight path, there is one straight path that God has given you, and that is the path of fearing Him and trusting in His Word. That doesn't mean that path is not going to be uh, beset with all sorts of complexities and frustrations and mysteries along this way. In this world, you will certainly have all of those. But it is the path that God himself, the one who made this world crooked by the curse, that God is calling you to and that God promises to preserve you on. That's what makes it a straight path. That's what Proverbs says, the way of the righteous is a straight path. A path of pride uh, that says that I can lean upon my own understanding and my own insights. It's a path that will lead you to ruin. 
Now, along these lines, then, the, the preacher confronts uh, uh, several attempts by human wisdom. So here it gets practical. Several attempts by human wisdom to explain the way that this world works and to explain the way that, that God works. He gives us two examples in verses 14 and 15. And really what they have in common is this assumption that we can know what God is up to. We can predict what God is planning to do. So he gives two examples. Number one, from verse 14, uh, one simplistic explanation for the difficulty in, uh, of life in this world is that, uh, that when good times come, those are from God, but when bad times come, those are from some other source. Maybe from the devil, maybe from bad karma, maybe from something else. But we, we want to assume God would not be involved with that. So it's a, it's a human view of God. And we'd all like that to be true. I admit, too, I would like that to be true. My heart wants that to be true, that God would not be behind some of the evil that takes place, that, that God's, or, or God's decrees, that God's ordaining would not somehow stand behind that. And especially when we're talking about sin. You think of some of the egregious sins that take place in this world. Uh, we find it unacceptable to say that God would actually not only allow those things, but even plan those things, ordain those things to happen. Uh, we want to say, no, 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 somehow God was outside of that. God was, was apart from that. But the preacher tells us otherwise. Verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In this life, here under the curse, the reality is that both prosperity and adversity come from the hand of God. Now, that's true. Scripture does teach that God is not the author of sin. God himself does not sin. Uh, our, own, uh, our own sins or the sins that others have committed against us, they do arise from within us, from within our own fallen and, and corrupted hearts. And yet, Scripture also teaches that God is absolutely sovereign over sin. Uh, indeed, He raises up sinners. He ordains and decrees that they will be what they are, and He uses them for His good purposes. So, for example, when Joseph's brothers sinned against him, the most egregious sin, selling your own brother into slavery and then lying about it to your father, uh, Joseph looks back afterwards and says to them, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. Now, don't, don't fall for the uh, misleading translation. The NLT does this. Uh, the NLT is written from an Arminian perspective, and so it, it, it takes that verse and says, God, God used it for good. But the Hebrew says God intended it for good. God was, on some level, behind it. It's what God said of the cruel-hearted Pharaoh as well. The Pharaoh, yes, the Pharaoh who told the, the Israelites to cast their baby boys into the Nile. God says of Pharaoh, I have raised him up for this very purpose, that my power might be shown through him. And so the Apostle Peter even says of those who crucified the Lord Jesus, the worst, uh, the worst sin that was ever committed in this world, that he says this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's hard to swallow, isn't it? 
That idea runs so, so powerfully against our human wisdom and our human instincts that people do all sorts of things to try and explain away how God might somehow decree or ordain such things. And this conundrum, it leads to all sorts of interesting theories that fall under this general category of, of what is called Arminianism, the idea that God cannot be uh, behind uh, any evil that happens in this world. Well, the preacher warns us not to waste our time going down that road. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Do not try to rationalize God or explain away his actions. He is in heaven. You are on earth. You're called to trust him, but do not dare to subject him to your understanding of how a good God ought to work. Well, related to this, is there's another uh, wonderful concoction of human wisdom and human religion that, uh, that sort of falls under the general banner of, of karma. Uh, that says, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. You see this in prosperity preaching all the world over. Uh, and it's a subtle assumption that all too often works its way even into our own uh, understanding. Uh, we see something tragic happen to someone, and on some level our understanding wants to say, uh, I wonder what they, did, what they did to deserve that. Or, or conversely, we see someone who's been richly blessed by God, uh, and we assume, well, they must be people that are particularly loved by God to have been blessed in that way. And when the preacher warns us, that's just not the way it is. He says, verse 15, In my vain life I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and a wicked man who prolongs his life by his wickedness. Now remember, uh, the meaning of that word vain, we, we've paused on that word before. The word vain is, is this idea of mist or fog, uh, breath. Uh, that's the sense we want to think of here when he says, in my vain life. He's not saying in my pointless life. He's saying in this misty life, in this foggy world. Uh, this is a conundrum, an enigma that we face in this world that we can't make sense of, but we know we don't like. Now, what we often do is we want to pretend, no, 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 people will always get what they deserve in this world. But it's foolishness. It really is foolishness. Go try and visit a children's hospital and tell yourself that people just get what they deserve. It's just not the way that this world works. God does not do what we want God to do. Sometimes the innocent and the righteous die young, even in infancy. And conversely, people that don't deserve to live sometimes enjoy long and happy lives. That's the reality under the curse. This life is just not straight. It's crooked, and it's crooked because God made it crooked. What we want to see here is a radically God-centered perspective that challenges our human wisdom and says, God knows what he's doing, though I don't. Uh, we want to abandon our trust in ourselves and lean more heavily, more completely on the goodness of God. I can't explain God, but I know that God is good. I know that whatever he's up to is good. Uh, human wisdom uh, will always try to concoct explanations for the way the world is. Uh, and and we, we gravitate towards the, these explanations because they give us a sense of being in control. I can explain what God is doing. And so I feel in control. What the preacher is calling us to do is don't get your security from feeling like you're in control. Get your security from entrusting yourself to a God who is good, whatever he is doing. 
He teaches us to fear God. He calls us to listen to God, to forsake our own wisdom and stand in humility before God. It's also in that vein, then, we get to the, uh, the verses that some of you might be excited about, uh, that the preacher also confronts our supposed righteousness. Verse 16, he says, Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? What should we make of, of that? Uh, perhaps for some people, you, you're thinking, you know, this is the one verse of the Bible that I can actually live by. Uh, this is going to be my new, my new life verse. What does the preacher mean by such a command? Well, obviously, he cannot be saying that that, uh, it is bad to be righteous, or bad, at least, to be truly righteous. Nor can he be saying that it is bad to be wise. After all, he's teaching us wisdom, isn't he? So if it was bad to be wise, then we should stop reading what what he's teaching us. That's not what he's doing. What we're dealing here, uh, what we're dealing with here, is is uh, the righteousness that is found righteous by human standards, and wisdom that is wise according to human standards. Now, what God has said is, this world is crooked, and you, brother, you, sister, are part of the crookedness of this world. Now look at verse twenty. Uh, Surely there is not a righteous man who, on earth who does good and never sins. What human wisdom says, though, is, no, 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 no. I will be righteous. I will, and if God doesn't make me righteous, I'm going to make myself righteous. I will prove you wrong, God, that I am a good person. And so what human wisdom does, then, it takes the law of God, uh, either from from his word or the law of God that even that he has written on our hearts, our, our inborn sense of right and wrong. It takes the law of God uh, and, and it picks and chooses from that law certain things that I will follow scrupulously and other things that I'm going to conveniently ignore. Uh, and, and, and then I will live scrupulously by these little stupid rules and say, look, look, see I am righteous. This is something that every human religion does. Uh, And it's something the Lord Jesus also confronted uh, often in his own ministry with the Pharisees. You think of Matthew 23, uh, verse 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. He says, You are hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you who strain out a gnat, but then swallow a camel. This is the kind of thing the preacher is talking about when he says, don't try to be overly righteous. You'll destroy yourself. In this world, God has told you what righteousness is. We heard it in the Ten Commandments. We heard it in the two uh, central commandments. Love God. Love your neighbor. Uh, God has told you what righteousness is, and God has also warned you, this is beyond, in this fallen world, this is beyond your attainment. He's warned you, you are not going to reach it in this world. You think of the words of Joshua to the people of Israel as they were about to enter the land. Joshua says to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. It's like him, he's saying, who do you think you are? You're not able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God. And yet the people kept saying back, no, 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 we will uh, keep the law. 
What we do in our striving uh, to be more righteous than God says we are is we ultimately will distort the law, picking and choosing from the law, and destroy ourselves. We'll spend all of our time like the Pharisees, tithing dill and mint and cumin, doing all these things so precisely and perfectly, uh, wasting hours and hours and hours on religious rituals, but ultimately not doing the things that God has commanded us to do, nor rejoicing in the life that God has given us to live. Because we refuse, here's the key point, we refuse to do it by faith. We'll destroy ourselves if we will not live by faith. Uh, we are too righteous, too wise for our own good, but in re- in inwardly and in reality, of course, we are not righteous at all. Well, scripture has a lot to say about this kind of religion. Uh, we read earlier from Colossians where Paul also confronts this even as it had crept already so quickly into the early Christian church. Uh, he says, let no one take you captive by philosophy and empty deceits. That word philosophy, it's a Greek word. Uh, It it is uh, philosophia, uh, which is the love of wisdom. Uh, But it's not the sort of wisdom that comes from God. It's the love of human wisdom. It's things that Paul says, they have the appearance of wisdom. They look like wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but these things are of no value in actually stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's it's a stuffy, self-righteous moralism that does nothing to address the pit of evil that exists within the human heart. Do not be overly righteous, because all you will ever achieve by that approach to religion is the wrong kind of righteousness, and you'll destroy yourself in the process. Now, there is, there is a ditch on the other side of the road here, uh, which the preacher also points out, much to the relief of all the parents among us, I'm sure. He says also, do not be overly wicked either. Why should you die before your time? Now, there's a wonderful contrast here between two very real mistakes. Uh, the one person who's stuffed up with self-righteousness and he's miserable, he's proud, he's judgmental, uh, he's way too religious for his own good, and he's miserable inside. He's wasting his life with meaningless obedience to insignificant rules. And then there's the other person, oftentimes uh, the children of, of the first guy, uh, who sees right through it all, uh, and, and he finds it thoroughly stupid, and he goes and he embraces a life of rampant hedonism and sin. And he's just as much a fool as the other person, and he too will destroy himself and die before his time. And what the preacher calls us to, what he calls us to, is not just a life of moderation. It's not just, uh, this is where the NIV's translation is, is, is woefully inadequate, where the NIV says, uh, the, the one who fears God will just avoid all extremes, as if it's about avoiding extremes. What the preacher actually says in verse 18 is, it is good that you should take hold from this, but from that not withhold your hand, for the one who fears God will come out from both of these errors. What the preacher commends to us here is to live by faith. That's what he means, the one who fears God. That means to live by faith. Uh, He's warned us against trusting in our own wisdom. Now he also warns us against trusting in our own righteousness. And he calls us in both realms 
to the fear of God. That is a life lived before the face of God in relationship with God. The religious person trusts in himself, but in his heart does not fear God. The fool trusts in his own wisdom and in the sight of his eyes, uh, and he pursues his pleasure without regard for God. But the wise, the wise who live by faith, uh, listen to the word of God, and by doing so, they keep their eyes fixed on the weightier matters of the law. They know that they're not going to achieve perfect righteousness, but they will strive to imitate the character of their father whom they love and serve. They know that God's going to be their judge, not man, and so there's no point trying to impress others with our religion. Now, the prophet Isaiah spoke about this as well uh, in Isaiah 66, uh, speaking against those who, who thought themselves to be very righteous, who, who brought all the right sacrifices, who did everything uh, right according to the, the specifications of the law of, of Moses, but whose heart was far from God. Uh, he, Isaiah 66 He says, uh, this is God speaking through him. When I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but instead they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Uh, And that's talking in the context of their religious observances. They're doing evil in the eyes of God. And that is contrasted then with the fear of God, with a life of faith where Isaiah goes on to say, or God through him, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Trembles at my word. True religion begins with the fear of the Lord, with trembling at his word. It is esteeming very lightly our own opinions or the opinions of man, and it is holding with great reverence the word of God and the favor of God for which we strive Although God has commanded uh, all of these various sacrifices that Isaiah is speaking of, it's not like the sacrifices were wrong in themselves. Uh, He had given these to to teach his people a life of faith. They didn't exist for their own sake. They didn't make their worshipers righteous. They were there to teach a life of faith. None of these rituals do anything if they're not done out of faith. And so the preacher here, too, warns us about these, these, these same dangers and calls us to a life of faith. Do not be overly righteous, that is, righteous without faith, nor be overly wise, nor be overly wicked uh, or a fool. It is good you should take hold of this, not let go of the other, fear God, and avoid both errors. Living by faith means willing to accept the reality, then, that you're going to sin in this life. It's not that you you embrace that reality. It's not that you like that reality, but it's that you understand and accept that reality as true. If you're going to strive to do what God is calling you to do, to love him, to love your neighbor, guess what? You're going to sin along the way. If you give your entire life to avoiding that fact or hiding that fact from yourself, uh, living by some scrupulous uh, obedience to religious rules, uh, most of which are not actually God's rules but man's rules, uh, things like no alcohol, no card games on Sunday, uh, vows of celibacy, uh, asceticism, that's, that's uh, withholding good from yourself or, or beating your, your body, if you, if you think you're going to make yourself righteous by those things, you will ultimately only end up disobeying the greater commands of God's law, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. 
So then, what's his, what's his encouragement to us? It is this, enjoy a beer, but don't get drunk. It is, uh, enjoy the gift of freedom of sexuality with your wife, but do so in a way that honors her and honors God. It is, uh, enjoy your life, enjoy your Christian freedom, but don't lose sight of the God who's given that freedom. Keep in step with the Spirit. Trust in, in God. Tremble at His Word. And don't worry about the laws of man. Honor God by enjoying the gift of life that God has given you and not throwing it away in the name of false piety. But at the same time, use your life. Use it to honor Him in everything that you do. It's what the Apostle Paul uh, teaches us in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of of God. That's what God made you for. So then, brothers and sisters, we come to our conclusion. Fear God. Trust not in your own wisdom. You can't make straight what God has made crooked, and it's ultimately a matter of pride to, to insist on, on still doing so. God hasn't called you to do what He promises to do. He's going to make straight what is crooked in this world. He has called you to live with Him, to fear Him, to, to obey Him, and to trust Him. And this is where the gospel comes in, especially uh, as it's revealed in Christ. The reason that God calls us to rest instead of to work for our righteousness, the reason God calls us to refrain from, from, from trying to make straight what He has made, made crooked is because only God can make straight what He has made crooked, and He promises to do so as he did to Adam and Eve, he promises to do so in Christ. Uh, in this life under the sun, there's a lot that's not going to make sense to us. And there's a lot that we're not going to be able to fix. Uh, there's a lot that we have no way of explaining. Uh, the image has sometimes been used of a grand tapestry. I'm sure you've heard this analogy. Uh, where, where we in this world, we live underneath the tapestry. We see all the threads jumbled together in, in what looks like a crazy mess. But God sees it from above as a beautiful tapestry that he is weaving that makes sense to him and will one day make sense to us as well. From above, from God's perspective, it's a beautiful tapestry that comes together in Christ. It's because of Christ that we can say with the Apostle Paul, we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. It's because of Christ then that we can also rest and refrain from every hopeless attempt at making ourselves righteous when God hasn't done so. If it were not for the cross of Christ, then, then, then the justice of God would stand against us for all of the weightier matters of the law that we've been neglecting. It's because of Christ, though, that we don't need to make ourselves righteous. We're righteous in Him. It's because of Christ we don't have to pretend to be righteous. We don't need to come up with some righteousness by ourselves. Instead, God gives us the freedom and the joy uh, to, to rejoice in this life, trusting in Christ, living in the hope of the next with the confidence that God will prepare us for, for that day. We get to live now in faith and in relationship with Him. So let's say application. The application is very simple. It, it is fear God, which is, in other words, to say, live by faith. Fix your eyes on Christ. 
That's going to save you on the one side from miserable uh, and, and a duplicitous life of, of, of self-made religion, and it will save you on the other hand from a destructive life of rebellion and sin. Live by faith, fixing your eyes on Christ. It means practically listen to his word and, and live, uh, respond daily in prayer. Uh, without those basic disciplines of grace, uh, faith will quickly wither and fade. So it, it, by saying rest, he is not saying do nothing. It's the same for, for what we do today on Sunday. Uh, when he says rest, it doesn't mean do nothing. He means spend time in his word, read his word, respond in prayer. Uh, living by faith does involve work, but is work that flows from rest. Uh, and as you read the word of God, also obey it. Yes, do obey it. He is not saying don't obey it, but let your obedience come from his word, not from the empty rules of man. And where the word also confronts sin in your life, uh, it is freedom, it is rest to confess your sin and forsake it. Uh, that is not work, it is rest. Uh, confess your sins to God, fix your hope on Christ, and then you get to live in the joy of his, not yours, his righteousness. Amen.